Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian. If I haven't met you yet, it is nice to meet you somewhat informally right now. I'd love to meet you afterwards. Um, like Andy said, we are in a series called Legacy. And uh, as we've been in the series now for a couple months, uh, there's been two stories that have been kind of revolving in my head uh, that I felt like were appropriate to share tonight and for what Paul's going to say. Uh, both happened to me a couple years ago, and these are, these are real. But uh, the first is a story about a friend of mine named Ryan. And uh, Ryan was a guy that I went to high school with. Um, we played baseball together, and we played football together. And uh, we kind of lost contact throughout college. Uh, but actually, when I was in grad school, I got a message from him on Facebook uh, basically saying he had just tried to commit suicide. It hadn't worked. And um, he knew that I was in ministry or religious or something like that. Could, could we talk? I was like, yeah, absolutely. We can talk. And so I called him up. We talked. We talked for about an hour. Uh, I shared with him the grace of Christ. I talked to him about how God could come and redeem his life. We talked about why the world is the way that it is, why he's experienced the brokenness that he's experienced. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. Yes, 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 yes. And it comes to the very end. I say, you know, do you want to give your life to following Jesus and stop functioning as God in, of your own life? He's like, yes, absolutely. That's what I want to do. And his life exploded after that. His spiritual life exploded. I mean, he was reading his Bible. He was looking for a good church to get connected to. He was sending me text messages, phone calls, updating me about everything that's going on. Until several weeks after that, the, the text message frequency slowed down. The phone call frequency slowed down. I actually got to the point that he wouldn't return my text messages or phone calls. Uh, and now today he is nothing more than a friend on Facebook who won't return my calls. Uh, and from the look of, look of it, looks of it on Facebook, uh, he's returned to the broken and destructive lifestyle he was living uh, before we talked. Uh, that's story number one. The second story is a story about a guy named Rob. And Rob was a guy that I met a couple years ago, right after this kind of encounter with Ryan. And uh, Rob was sort of a mutual friend who lives here in Denver. And uh, I was told by this mutual friend, like, this is a great man of God. This is a man of God that you should get connected to in the city of Denver. I said, okay, absolutely. So I walked over to his house, sat on his front porch. Uh, we talked for a while, and within the first 15 minutes, he told me that even though he was raised in a Christian home, uh, even though he was raised by godly parents, uh, he, had, he is now disconnected from the church. He was now disconnected from Jesus. He was now to a point where he was questioning everything that he had been raised to believe, and he had sort of absorbed the culture of leisure that dominates our city of Denver. Now, the reason I tell you those two seemingly uh, unrelated stories is because through them is threaded a central question that I've been wrestling with throughout the entirety of this series and that is going to be the heart of what Paul shares tonight and it's this. It's what does it look like to finish well? What does it mean to finish well. Like, what, is, what does it look like? How does it happen? In a culture, in a culture where probably every single one of you could share a story like that, where in a culture where every single one of you could talk about a friend, a family member, somebody that you know of that started just on fire for Jesus, but now is totally disconnected from the church, what does it look like to finish well? In a culture where um, statistics show that Americans change religions as often as they change their gym socks, what does it look like to finish well? How in your life and in mine, does faith in Christ be something more than a fad? Something more than just a small phase that we went through in our youth? And how is it so that we come to the end of our lives, not if you die, but when you come to die, that the most important people in your life and in mine say that was a man, that was a woman who didn't just run the race of life, but finished the race of life with excellence. What does it look like? What does it look like to finish well? Because here's the thing, is the Bible has a very specific vision for your life. No matter what you believe about God, no matter what you believe about God, God has a very specific vision about your life. And it's not just that you would live well, it's that you would finish well. 
And that's the heart of what Paul is going to get to tonight. What does it mean to finish well? Paul is going to write this to a young friend named Timothy. And it's not just written to a young friend named Timothy. It's written to our church today as well. In a church full of young people, many of you have been Christians for less than five years. Many of you are exploring Christianity and seeing if this is the type of thing that you want to give your life to or not. And what we're going to see tonight is that that the Bible has a vision for what Jesus should look like in your life. And it shouldn't just be some interesting phase you go through. It shouldn't just be a fad you buy into in the midst of a crisis, but instead it should be something that that guides your life as you finish. What does it mean to finish well? Let's look at verse one. Here's the first thing you need to understand about finishing well. Here's the first thing that Paul is gonna tell us is that you need to be honest about the fact that you may not finish well, okay? You need to be honest about the fact that every single one of us may not finish well. Now look at verse one of chapter four. Paul writes this, he says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So that's exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying there are those who will depart from the faith. What that would practically look like in the life of our church is that there are people in this room who are bought into the mission, who are singing the praise songs, who are part of city groups, who we brought up on stage to recognize as new members, and you will disappear. And people will ask, what happened to you? And I will have to say with brokenheartedness that I don't know. I don't know what happened. You just disappeared. You fell away. Okay, so he says, some will depart from the faith. Look at verse one again. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So that's why people fall away. They devote themselves to the teachings of demons. Now, you probably look at that in one of two ways. Some of you are very skeptical and you think demons are about as likely as mermaids or fairies. And I understand that perspective. I was raised to think that way. But you need to understand that this book, the Bible says that we live in the midst of a war zone. And there are good guys and there are bad guys. And the war is for your soul. And there are casualties. And the greatest trick that demons can play on you is deceiving you, to, deceiving you to the point that you believe that they don't exist. That is a significant victory there. Now, some of you believe that, yeah, I mean, I, I'm tracking with you. I understand. I believe in Satan. I believe in demons. And you would say, but when I think about somebody being led astray, that's not me. Nobody's like, you know what? You know who would be led astray by Satan? Me. When you think about going down at 16th Street Mall, bumping into Satan, red skin, horns, pointy tail, pointy tail cape, and he's like, hey, you want to go to Starbucks and we'll do a quiet time together? You'd be like, no, like, no, I don't, I don't need to think about that. I don't need to pray about it. No. But, but, but look at this. Look at verse 3. Because Paul is going to elaborate about what is the deceitful teaching of demons that leads people astray. Look at verse 3. He says, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, here's what they were requiring. They were saying that the heart of Christianity is primarily what, probably what many of you were raised to believe that Christianity is all about, that there are good people and that there are bad people. And good people follow a list of certain rules. And if you really want to be loved by God, you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. You dress like this. You listen like to this. You don't do these things and God will love you and you will get to go to heaven. And for bad people, they do the exact opposite and they will go to hell. That's essentially what these teachers were teaching. They were saying, if you really want to be loved by God, you won't get married, you won't eat these foods. If you really want to be loved by God, you need to follow this checklist. Now, it doesn't seem that bad on the surface. I mean, it almost seems harsh to call it demonic. But do you know why it's demonic? It's demonic because it is devoid of the heart of Christianity. It's a system, it's an elaborate religious system created that totally omits Jesus. See, here's why that's demonic. 
is that the heart of Christianity is not that there's a checklist of things that you can and can't do in order to please God. In the end, Christianity is not about those who keep the rules and those who can't keep the rules. Christianity is about the fact that you cannot and you have not kept the rules, but God, by his grace, has given you his son to keep the rules on your behalf and to be perfect for you. And in order to be loved by God, it is not about you coming and giving God your perfect religious resume. But instead, you bring to God your confession and acknowledgement of weakness and your need to move, for him to move in your life. And what's so weird about this, what's so counterintuitive about this, is what Paul is saying is the people that are going to be led astray aren't irreligious. That's usually what you think. You think it's the people who are having sex all the time. You think it's the people who are getting drunk every night. No, the people who are most likely to be led astray are religious in nature. They're religious. And they've created a religious system that totally omits Jesus. Now, it's interesting because this is actually what kills the church at Ephesus. This is actually what kills the church at Ephesus. If you fast forward a few years in the Bible, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, we're going to bring it up on the screen here. What what you're going to see is this is actually what kills the church at Ephesus. Here's what Paul writes. I can't read all that, so I'm going to pull it up here. Paul writes, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus writes this to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. So he's just writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. Uh and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So up to this point, this seems really, really good, right? I mean, this is a good church to be a part of. This is a group of people, they're testing false teachers, they're making sure people are not evil. I mean, all of us would say, that is good stuff. I want to be a part of that church. But look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, see, we think that people fall away. We think that Jesus shuts the doors of churches primarily because they go liberal, they get bad theology, they start getting drunk. I mean, they just do all these unbiblical things. But what we see here is the most people, the most likely people to be led astray are not irreligious in nature. They are religious because it's so easy to create a complicated religious system where you can function as savior in your own life and totally omit Jesus. See, here is what's so frightening about that is that Jesus is saying, is that some of you will fall away. What what Paul is saying is some of you will fall away. And the people who are most likely to fall away are those who assume that they will never fall away. Okay, I'm going to say that again. The people who are most likely to fall away are the same people who assume that they never will fall away because they're so religious, they're so good, they can keep the rules. They're good enough. That would never be them. Even some of you, when we talk about, yeah, like some people could fall away. You are completely tracking with me in that. You're completely tracking with me in that. But the problem is, is you're thinking about somebody else and you're thinking, yeah, I could think about that family member. I could think about that friend. I could think about that coworker. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they fell away. You may be thinking about somebody in this room. The problem is, is Paul is not talking about somebody else. He is talking about you and he's talking about me. 
And in light of the fact that we live in a war zone, in light of the fact that you could come up here and give story after story after story about people who you thought were great men of God, great women of God, who have fallen away from the faith, you need to take seriously the fact that you could fall away from Jesus. You could. You could fall away from Jesus. So in light of that, in light of the fact that you could fall away in Jesus, how do we keep from doing that? How do we keep from doing that? That's what Paul is going to say. He's going to give two primary action steps for the way that we do that. And this is underneath the umbrella of saying that, that in the end, we continually, continually, continually return to the grace and the love and the goodness of Christ. Okay? Underneath that umbrella of saying we return to Jesus, the one who sought after us to begin with. We return to him and we do that one of two ways. Now, the first is that we have to devote ourselves to personal training. Okay? We have to commit ourselves to personal training, all right? We're going to look at verse 6. Andy just read verses 6 through 16, but I'm going to go through this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to point out some phrases, some key phrases in here that if you, if you underline, if you highlight, if you circle, these would be good things to highlight and kind of to see the heart of what Paul is getting at, okay? We're going to go right through 6 through 16 real quick. Verse 6, Paul says, being trained in the words of the faith. Verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. Verse 13, devote yourself. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift that you have. Verse 15, practice these things. Verse 15 again, devote yourself to them. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself. Verse 16 again, persist in this. Here is what Paul is saying. He's saying that finishing well, that godliness, being the type of man or woman who comes at the end of their life and the most, in people, most important people in your life, your children's children praise you and the legacy that you're giving. That finishing well in godliness does not just happen. It doesn't just happen. You don't just stumble into it accidentally. You don't just stumble into it. Now, now there's plenty of things that can happen without intentionality, Right? You can be very mediocre at your job with, with, without any intentionality whatsoever. Probably many of you. You could spend seven and a half hours every single day on Facebook, and you don't have to plan for it. There's no intentionality. There's no forward thinking. It just happens, right? The same way we put on weight. You don't have to plan to put on weight. It just happens. All you have to do is not think about what you're putting in your, bo- in your body, and you're going to be eating McDonald's for three square meals a day because it's cheap, and they advertise yogurt and say it's healthy for you. See, you don't have to plan for that, but for things that are worthwhile, for things that are meaningful, for things that are purposeful, you know and I know that you have to work hard for them. You have to go after them. You have to plan for them. Many of you have great jobs. You have excellent jobs. It didn't just happen. You didn't just stumble into it. You worked hard for it. There are countless hours behind the scenes that nobody else sees that led to the fruit of you getting that good job. Some of you, a few, we don't have a whole lot of people that are married, but for a few of you, you have really healthy marriages. And you know it didn't just happen. You, you work at that. You read books together. You pray together. You forgive one another. You repent to one another. You resist the urge to slander your husband in public or in private. I mean, you work at it, and the fruit of that is a good marriage. And what Paul is saying is for anything that's worthwhile, and particularly for finishing well, particularly for godliness, hard work is at its core. Hard work's at its core. You have to work hard to finish well. You have to be characterized by, by personal training. In verse 7, Paul gets to the heart of this. He says this, 
train yourself for godliness. That, that, word, that expression, train yourself, the original word that Paul used there is gymnazo. That's, that's the verb that he used there, gymnazo, which is, is the word that we get our word gymnasium from. And the image is an athlete who works countless hours behind the scenes, who puts in countless reps behind the scenes so that when it is his or her time to shine, he or she is ready to do the best that she can possibly do. It reminds me of when I was playing high school football and there was countless agility drills, countless weightlifting, countless, countless hours of memorizing the playbook. Why? So that for 16 games, for 16 games, I could be the best that I could be. For 16 games, that's it. That I could be the best that I could be. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you need to work hard at pursuing godliness. You need to train yourself for godliness. Why? Because your moment is going to come too. And that coworker is going to come to you. And she's not going to have anybody to talk about. And she's going to know that you're religious or something. And she's going to share with you that she just had a miscarriage. And she doesn't have anybody to talk to. And you're going to have some friend from college five years from now call you out of the blue and tell you that his marriage is falling apart. And in those moments when you finally come face to face with real life issues and you finally have an opportunity to be a meaningful member, meaningful minister and missionary for Jesus, what are you going to offer? Pop psychology that you saw on TV? Some feel-good expression that you saw on the back of a Christian t-shirt? It takes countless hours, countless personal training behind the scenes to work towards godliness and to be ready to be an effective minister for the glory of God. Now, here's the thing. I mean, I'm not really using the language, but many of you who grew up in church know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having your quiet time. I'm talking about having a devotional. I don't, whatever you want to call it, that's what I'm talking about. I know as that arises, usually people either offer pushback or they start feeling guilty. And they think about how, the, you know, it's not even fair. You can't, you can't compare, like, training for a football game in the same way that you compare training for godliness. Those are, like, different categories. That's not fair. Like, one comes very easy for me, and one doesn't. Now, I used to think the same way, too. And I remember in college where this shifted. It shifted for me when I was starting to try and develop, like, personal spiritual disciplines, that I was starting to try to train myself for godliness. And I am not a morning person, and it's really, it was really hard for me in college, to be honest, to get a get up before 10 o'clock. And I always wanted to be that person who gets up at like 4 a.m. and reads their Bible for an hour. You know, like I just always wanted to be that person. And so I had my buddy Matt call me at 9 a.m. every single morning. Call me, wake me up. I don't care what it takes, no matter what I say. Wake me up and make me read my Bible. And so he did it. And every single time I'd be asleep and I'd call him nasty names and I'd have to go apologize later until after weeks of that, there was actually one morning that I got up with no problem whatsoever. And it wasn't because I was up reading my Bible or praying. It was because it was the morning on, in which uh, the tickets for the South Carolina-Georgia game were being distributed to students. And if you know anything about SEC football, the tickets go fast. And so I knew I needed to be up at about 5 a.m. I'm not joking, 5 a.m. in order to go and get tickets. So I set my alarm for 5 a.m., but I am so excited. I literally wake up at like 4.55. I mean, I'm like, bing, like just wake up, no problem whatsoever. And I take a shower, and I, you know, I'm walking, and I'm standing in this ridiculous line of a bunch of fanatics about SEC football. And then it hit me. As the sun was rising over downtown Columbia, it hit me. I don't, I don't have a system problem. I don't happen to just not be a morning person. It's not that my schedule is just so crazy. Like, I have a desire problem. I have a heart problem. Like, at the heart of it, at the heart of it is I just functionally love college football a lot more than I love God. 
I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just true. And, and my challenge to those of you who struggle with this, my, my pushback to those of you who struggle with this and think about you know, reading your Bible regularly, who think about praying regularly, who think about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life and being characterized by those regularly, maybe what you don't need is for your life to slow down or for me to give you five principles for having a great quiet time. Maybe you need to get on your face before God and to ask him to change your heart so that you would grow in your affection and your desire and you would find so much joy in getting to know and love and, and just be connected to Jesus that that would enthrall you more than the trivial stuff that distracts you and me on a day in, day out basis. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that having a plan doesn't, doesn't work, it doesn't help, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't help to be forward-thinking. In fact, Paul says it's very helpful to be forward-thinking, to train yourself for godliness, to keep yourself from falling away. In fact, the language that Paul uses somewhere else, he says it's like running a race. It's like running a race. And if you've ever run a race, I've run one half marathon in my life, you know that, I mean, there's training, there's planning, there's a lot of strategy that goes, that goes into it. I actually thought a lot about this this week, and I realized that the plan for training yourself for godliness is a lot like train yourself to run. So here's sort of my three principles that emerge from that. The first is that individual training is a community project. Individual training is a community project. Now, a lot of times you think that, you know, I'm almost like following Jesus is is an individual sport. And we say all the time, it's not. It's a team sport. And if you know anything about running, I mean, even though running is an individual sport, what happens as you're training for something is it really helps to have people who come alongside you to encourage and and help you continue forward. And so I remember when I was training for my half marathon, I had guys texting me. I had guys running alongside me sometimes. I had guys holding me accountable. I told them how many days a week that I wanted to run, and they held me accountable to go and do it. And it's the same way in the Christian life. Say, hey, come alongside me and help me go and accomplish this together. Let's go do this together. Maybe you just need to go and say, hey, let's read through, let's read through the Bible together. Let's just do it together. Come help me. I can't do it alone. You weren't meant to do it alone. Come help me do this. The second principle is to set realistic goals. Set realistic goals. Now, now here's the thing. If you, if you know anything about the phenomenon of running, like what happens very often is, is a lot of times when there's a big marathon, like you know, there's the Colfax Marathon in Denver, what happens is a lot of people come out and they watch it. And then they get really encouraged. They get really motivated. They feel kind of guilty for being overweight. And they're like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that like tomorrow. You know, like I am going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to start running. And I'm going to run 20 miles tomorrow to make up for lost time. You know what happens if you run for 20 miles if you haven't run for five years? You either die or you hurt yourself. And it's the same thing with this. A lot of times what happens is you hear sermons like this, you hear messages like this, and you start feeling guilty, and you think about the fact that you haven't had a meaningful devotional life for years, and you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that starting tomorrow, and I'm going to make up for lost time. I'm going to... I'm going to read Romans. No, I'm going to memorize Romans. I'm going to memorize Romans tomorrow. You know what happens? You just end up hurt and you end up discouraged. It doesn't work well for you. Set realistic goals. Maybe you just need to say, for 15 minutes a day, for 15 minutes a day, I'm going to read my Bible. For 15 minutes. You know if you read your Bible 15 minutes a day for the next 365 days that you will have read through the entire Bible in a year? Maybe you just need to pray for five minutes every day. Maybe you just need to memorize one verse of the Bible a month. Do something. Do something. Start somewhere and do something. The third is this, is think long-term. Think consistently, think consistency, and think long-term. A lot of times when people are training for races, the way they do it is they get really excited, and they run like 10 miles, and then they're so tired 
for four weeks so they don't run again. And then they run 10 miles again, and then they rest four weeks, and then they run 10 miles again. Many of your devotional lives look just like this, where you get really excited, you read the New Testament, you don't read anything for six months, and then you try to read the Old Testament or something like that. What you don't need to underestimate is the value of making regular 15 to 30 minute investments and training yourself for godliness on a daily basis. In the end, a healthy lifestyle doesn't come from killing yourself once every six weeks. It comes from developing a lifestyle of working out 15 to 30 minutes a day. And it's the same way in godliness to say, 15 to 30 minutes a day, I'm going to make an investment. I'm going to make an investment in the most important thing I can make an investment in. And in the end, these are just principles. That, you know, these aren't necessarily biblical one way or another. They're just, they're just helps. But in the end, what, what, what this should push you to is to say, in order to avoid falling away, you need... You need to devote yourself to personal training, not just for the sake of personal training, but so that you would return to the Savior, Jesus, who loves you and saved you daily. Daily you would return to him. So Paul says, many of you need to be aware that you'll fall away. Paul says that you need to devote yourself to personal training. And finally, here's what Paul says. He says that you need to commit yourself to a public mission. You need to commit yourself to a public mission. Now, I'm going to do the same thing I did before, and we're just going to look at verses 11 through 16. And I'm just going to try to get at the heart of what Paul is saying here. Verses 11 through 16, look at how Paul pushes Timothy to live on mission in response to the gospel. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 15, practice these things. Verse 16, persist in this for For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What Paul is saying is that learning for no greater cause than learning, accumulating biblical knowledge for no greater cause than just accumulating biblical knowledge is not what you're being called to. You're not. You know what happens when people just learn the Bible for the sake of learning the Bible and people just accumulate knowledge for the sake of accumulating knowledge? One of two things happens. Either you end up tremendously apathetic Tremendously apathetic because in the end, like you have no idea like why you have to learn all this stuff. Like why, what's, the, what's even the point? Like why do you need to learn any of this? You end up apathetic. The second is you end up arrogant. You end up absolutely arrogant because you are reading this Bible in order to accumulate more and more knowledge, in order to have more and more arguments in which you can win because you find your hope in winning arguments about knowledge of the Bible. And what Paul is saying is you're not being called to arrogance, you're not being called to apathy, but instead, when you read this book, when you pray, when you fast, when you memorize scripture, when you live in community, what should come to the forefront of your mind is not just accumulating more knowledge, but but as you hear and read Jesus teach about hell, that there should be friends and coworkers who come to your mind. As you, as you hear Paul talk about how there is nobody who is too bad to receive the grace of the gospel, there should be family members that come to mind who are more broken than you could ever imagine, but who God can redeem. What should come to your mind are faces and names that break your heart. So this is more than just an academic exercise. This is more than just a burden, but instead... It is an equipping time. It is an equipping time for you to be a good missionary to the people that God has called you to be. Learning just for the sake of learning, 
It's totally pointless. It's like the guys who like go to the gym and just do bicep curls for like 30 minutes. That, that leads to no sort of functional fitness whatsoever. You just look good on the beach. It's the same way people just read their Bible over and over and over again, but don't give themselves to a public mission. That's why we as a church call you to that over and over and over again. That's why we as a church push you to join our church family, not so we can grow our numbers, but so we can multiply our missionary impact, so we can expand the mission of God that he has called us to and our impact in this city. That's what you need. You need that in order for this to be more than just a burden or something that, that puffs you up into arrogance. Now, at the beginning, I told two stories. I told you about Ryan, and I told you about Rob. I wanted to tell you about a third story, about a friend of mine named Carl. Okay, a friend of mine named Carl. Carl is 71 years old, and Carl is actually the last person I met with in North Carolina before I moved to Denver in January. Carl was 71 years old, and the way I knew him was because he was an elder. He was one of the, uh, kind of one of the pastor, pastors at uh, the church that sent us out here. And it was kind of a fitting last meeting because I sat there with him and, and we ate at this Panera right next to the church. And for about an hour and a half, Carl just told me stories. He told me stories about decades of faithfulness to Jesus. He told me about stories of decades of faithfulness to one woman. He challenged me over soup. He challenged me over soup to, to devote myself to godliness and purity. And right after that meeting, there was, a, there was a service to recognize Carl because he was actually retiring as an elder at the summit. And I go into this room, and this room is packed of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have been touched by this man's life. And Carl walks across the stage, and I'm sitting in the very back of the room. And, and as he's walking across, probably for one of his final times at the summit, like people just erupt with applause. Like they stand up. I mean, it was a true standing ovation. Not like standing ovation where everybody looks at each other like, do we have to do this thing? Like, I don't, I don't, like true standing ovation. And I thought to myself, as I saw this man walk across the stage, that's success. That's success. I know, I know there won't be a documentary about him on MTV. I know he won't, probably won't make the papers whatsoever. But when that man goes to be with Jesus, he is left in his wake of a lifestyle of being faithful to God. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who will say, that's a man who didn't just run the race, he finished with excellence. That's not a man who just lived well, that's a man who finished well. I actually emailed Carl this week because I told him that all my friends have been Christians for less than 10 years. And so I was like, how do you finish well? Like, tell me, Carl, how do you finish well? And he wrote me an email back and he basically said this. He said, Here's what I've experienced. I've become a lifelong learner. I just continue, even in my 70s, to learn things about who Jesus is. He said, I've given myself to meaningful biblical community. I'm actually leaving right now from being with a group of men who hold me accountable to godliness. He said, and I've never forgot that, that Jesus can change lives, and I just, never get it, I just never get over the fact that he can do that. I said, Carl, that sounds a lot like 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, Exactly. Exactly. See, that's the thing. Is God has called you not just to live well, he has called you to finish well. And I know, I know that finishing well probably seems way off in the future. It probably seems like something you'll never, never face. Many of you are in your early 20s, but the reality is the decisions that you're making today, the decisions you're making now, the way you structure your life now, the way you architect your schedule will impact whether or not you are a man or a woman who in the end people say, 
the people who matter the most, that your children's children say that that was a person who didn't just live well, but that's a person who finished well and ran the race with excellence. That's the legacy God has called you to. That's the legacy God has called us in this church. And I'm gonna pray now and ask that God would make this true in your life and in mine. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that you have saved us and saved us not just from sin, death, and hell, but you have saved us into a new community that you call the church that is meant to live on mission for your glory. And I pray that we would be people who never get over our stories of how you have saved us by your grace and been so kind and graceful to us. In light of that, Lord, let us have a healthy fear of our own depravity and let us have a healthy confidence in your goodness and let us return to you over and over and over again. Not just so that we stay close, but so that we see the most important people in our spheres of influence become followers of you. We love you. We love this city. God, move in ways greater than we could ever wrap our minds around. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.